We are now in our 11th message in the series called Jesus Wins about spiritual warfare, establishing a context for it. You know, I don't know about you, but I've probably heard 5,000 sermons in my life. And most of them were a one-time experience. How was it? Good, I didn't sleep. How was it? Learned a little bit. Our goal today is to do much more than that. In fact, in the whole series, it's more than just to have a 20-minute, uh, 25-minute experience. It's to begin to answer some questions that we always ask. Why? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Why even attempt to? How? How do we do it? What's its purpose? Who is Satan? Who am I? Why does God allow such things to occur? Why does he tolerate me? All those questions. So this morning in our 11th message entitled Articles of War, we want to dig into a text that brings to light some of the answers to the question, why? Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered together and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you, you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One time when Oliver Wendell Holmes was practicing medicine, he went to the home of a poor man and his patient. And as he got to the front door, a priest was coming out of the house and he said, Oh, Dr. Holmes, I'm glad you're here. Your patient is desperately ill. I think he's going to die. Holmes looked at the priest and said, I think he's going to hell, too. The priest said, watch your tongue. I just administered extreme unction. You must not say such things. To which Holmes said, well, you expressed a medical opinion. I expressed a theological one. It's said that in science, every discipline has its own instrument. 
In geology, it's a hammer. In biology, it's a microscope. In astronomy, it's a telescope. Now, just imagine a biologist going into a field to examine a daisy with a telescope. You say the guy's a fruitcake. You know, the same is true in theology. Theology is the study of God, and there's one instrument that is essential in the study of God, and that's the surrender of a person's will. Without the surrender of your will, you may have degrees that line your walls, and yet you will not know the truth of God. And in fact, you will be a, a fruitcake. For years I knew a man in Florida who was a harbor pilot. One time I asked him, what's the most important thing for you to know? He said, well, let me give you a story. There was a young man who was working the Mississippi River, and he came to the riverboat captain and asked for a job. And the captain said to him, how long have you been on the river? The boy said, I've been on the river for five years. The captain said, well, you know, do you know where all the sandbars are? And he said, no, sir, but I know where they ain't. And he got the job. You see, in the war that Satan and man has waged against God, there are sandbars. There are shoals that God has formed himself. He has created in lives sandbars that regulate the conflict. Remember when Adam exerts his own will? There is absolutely nothing in the Scriptures that attests to the fact that God is surprised. In fact, when Adam exerts his own will and God punishes him, every one of those punishments is a declaration that God has a plan. In 1637, Robert Monroe established rules for the Scottish army. They were rules of engagement. Anytime Scotland faced a war, they would apply Monroe's doctrine to their affairs in war. Sixteen years later, the British Army picked up those, those uh, articles of war, and they tweaked them a little bit, and they called them their articles of war. Anytime in a war that the British soldiers were engaged in a war, they would follow certain rules. Ladies and gentlemen, the same is true in spiritual warfare. There are rules that God has established. Before the fall of Lucifer, before the fall of man, God established articles of war, rules of engagement, rules that would dictate how one will would act in light of the divine will. God's purpose in establishing this rule, these rules are to demonstrate to all of creation that no will can succeed apart from His will. I mean, you think about it. No will but God's will can bring light out of darkness. No will but God's will can bring order out of chaos. No will but God's will can bring lasting good, lasting joy, lasting peace, but God's will. So when Adam sins, 
God doesn't treat him like Lucifer. God doesn't cast him out. Instead, God comes to him. And there in God's presence, God begins to mete out his punishments. God came to Adam. God found Adam in his sin. And when God comes and announces to Adam the punishment, God is announcing the rules by which sin will be sinned. Have you ever thought about that? There are rules that dictate how sin will be sinned. You say rules, that's right. Rules regarding sin. Yep, that's exactly right. And so let's dig in. First of all, notice the three fruits of sin. Fear. I will no longer talk, talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, and I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now remember when this is. This is hours before Satan's most vicious attack on Jesus. Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. And he looks at them and he says, the prince of this world is coming. Now, three years earlier, Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says near the end of that time, Satan has come to, comes to him and he tempts him with three temptations. And Jesus resists each one. And finally he says, be gone. And Luke tells us, that Satan withdraws, waiting for an opportune moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is that moment. To this point, Jesus has met Satan on a number of occasions during his three-year ministry. Each one of those times, Jesus has, has vanquished him at every turn. And yet now, at the end of his life, Satan comes with his most aggressive vengeful attack on Jesus. Yet notice what Jesus says. I want you to know that though he is coming, he has no hold on me. And he doesn't stop there. He says, in effect, he has no hold on you either. For I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, every one of those men in that room would have understood what Jesus meant. They would have understood the image, at least. Throughout the Old Testament, God has compared Israel to a vine of his own planting. He took the vine out of Egypt. He planted it in goodly soil. He expected it to produce good fruit, but instead it produces grapes of wrath. Throughout the centuries, the vine dresser has sent servants to tend his vine. But often, the vine would rise up against those servants, and they would malign them, sometimes even kill them. And yet on this particular night, the night of Satan's most vicious attack, Jesus says, all the fruit that my father ever intended to produce in the vine is produced in me. 
I am the fulfillment of the true vine. You say, well, what fruit did Jesus produce? What kind of fruit did Jesus produce? Well, he answers it in this text. He says that everything the Father has commanded me, I've done. In other words, I've willed one will, and that one will is not my will, it's the will of my Father. And he says in effect to these disciples, you will will that one will too. Now I want you to think about the fruit of Adam's sin, the first fruit. The Bible says when he eats of the fruit, immediately the next scene he hears the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and with the sound of the Lord he hides. Doesn't even have to see the Lord. All he has to do is hear the Lord and he hides. Now why does he hide? Because God has established that the first fruit of sin is always fear. The first fruit of disobedience is fear. And every one of us knows that. When you will your own will and you begin to experience the consequences of being found out, you want to hide. You want to fear. Fear clutches at you. It pursues you like a stalker. It never lets you rest. It interrupts your sleep. It interrupts your daytime activities. It interrupts your life. In fact, it's so pervasive, this fear, that you ask any psychologist the essence of what they attempt to do in therapy with a client, and it, they'll always answer the same thing. My job is to seek to unmine the fears in the life of that patient, to bring to light their fears. But I want you to remember or to know that the Bible talks about two kinds of fears. There's a good fear, a fear that heals, and there's a bad fear, a fear that corrodes. Listen to what the psalmist says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that fear is clean. What's he mean? How is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? And how is it clean? Years ago, I read about a woman who was talking to her daughter. This woman had been married about 30 years, and her daughter was getting married, and she was in conversation, and she said, I want you to know something. For the first couple of weeks of our marriage, I was in fear of burning your father's dinner. In fact, I was so fearful of it that I stood by the oven for three hours, consistently opening, make sure it didn't burn. Now, what's she mean? Does she mean she thought her husband would beat her if it burned? Some might. Did she mean that if it was scorched at all, that he would berate her? No, what she meant is she loved him so much, her desire was so much to please him that she didn't want the food to be spoiled. You know, in her case, the fear of her husband was the beginning of good cooking. That's what the psalmist means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
when the Lord's the desire of your heart and you want to please Him, begins to take on a life of its own, this fear. She wants to please her husband. We want to please the Father. But there's another kind of fear. And that fear comes into a heart that wills its own will. It's a desire to please itself. And when you will that will, and you seek to desire your own desires rather than God's desires, terror results. You begin to hide. You begin to cover up. You begin to blame. You begin to do exactly what Adam did. You do exactly what Eve did. I see it all the time. In the lives of others and in my own life. The first fruit of sin is fear, and that's the first article that God has established in the spiritual war. Satan fears him. Man fears him. It's not a clean fear. It's not a fear that's wise. It's a fear that's very dumb. And it's a fear that corrodes our lives. And then second, notice the restlessness. But I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Someone has said that whenever man chooses to lie down in sin, the Lord always makes thorns grow in his bed. Whenever we choose to lie down in sin, God has a way of having thorns grow in our bed. Remember Job 1? Satan has been cast out of the heavenly Eden. He no longer occupies his place of, of leadership. He's no longer the, the prophet and the priest and the king that God has established for him in that Eden. God's cast him out. Not only does God cast him out, he wrecks and ruins his creation. And yet, God does not end Satan's existence. He allows him to roam. And that's what he does. He roams from to and fro. His movements are not restricted even when God reforms the creation. So the Bible says in Job chapter 1, when the angels of God, the sons of God, come before the Lord into his presence, so also comes Satan. He's been cast out of the heavenly Eden. He's been cast out of his position but he's allowed to occasionally enter the presence of God. And when Satan shows up, God asks him a question, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been wandering to and fro on the earth. I've been walking up and down the earth. I've been moving around. No place to rest. You file that under restlessness. You see, the consequence of his sin is restlessness. He has no place to abide. All he can do is roam. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not just true of Satan. That's true of every sinner's heart. Augustine once prayed, Lord, make my heart restless until it finds its rest 
in you. I mean, what a great prayer that is. Lord, make us restless until we find our rest in you. Now, why does he pray that? Because he understands that one of the fruits of sin is a restless heart. Do you think Jesus understood that? You better believe he did. Remember what he says? Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place of permanence for you. What is that place? A place of rest. Why does Jesus say that? Because he understands the articles of war. Not only is fear a consequence of sin, but so is a restless heart. Then third, notice hatred. As the Father loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. Now there's a text in the book of Isaiah that Jerry read earlier. Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. And these verses are so controversial, at least one of them is, verse 7, that some translators, even the ESV translators, the NIV the same way, they choose to mistranslate one word of that verse. Here's how verse 7 reads. I am Jehovah. Now remember, Jehovah, that name for God, it was always associated with God saving I am Jehovah, the saving God, there is no other, forming light and creating darkness, making peace and creating evil. The word is Ra in Hebrew. Thirteen times, thirteen, yeah, three and ten, thirteen times in the Old Testament, Ra, R-A, is translated calamity or sorrow. And that's the way most English translators translate it, calamity or sorrow. In other words, I am Jehovah, there's no other, forming light, creating darkness, making peace, and creating calamity or sorrow. But over 150 times, that word raw is translated evil. And I think that's exactly what he's saying here. I not only make peace, but I create evil. You say, wait a minute. How could God, a good God, a holy God, create evil? The book of James tells us he cannot tempt with evil, so how could he create it? What does it mean to create evil? Well, I draw on Barnhouse again for a great illustration. Have you ever driven in southern, southeastern Georgia? Maybe the Everglades. You ever drive down there? You don't want to take your kid who's just learning to drive down there. Because what you have is a roadway and a swamp on both sides. Now, some of that's a beautiful drive. But I'll tell you something. It's only beautiful if you stay on the road. As long as you're on that road, and usually they're straight, but sometimes they curve. As long as you're on that road, in your lane, you're okay. But veer to the right or the left, you're in with the gators. And Barnhouse says that's exactly the way in which God creates evil. 
That's how it is in spiritual warfare. When the Holy Spirit breathes life into you, when you're saved by the power of the Spirit, when He's regenerated you, He's opened your blind eyes, unstopped your deaf ears, after you've come to spiritual life, He sets you on a road. And He doesn't abandon you, He indwells you. This is the way you are to travel. And it's a road that has ditches on both sides. And Peter's a good example. Remember when he's walking on the water? As long as he fixes his eyes on Jesus, he's on top of the water. As soon as he looks around, he goes under the water. When we take our eyes off Christ, when we will our own will rather than his will, we sink. Before Lucifer sinned, God established a set of rules by which sin would be sinned. And just as he never allows Satan to operate outside his control, he never allows any man or woman to operate outside his control. For every act of righteousness, there's a corresponding act of unrighteousness. For every act of righteous fear, there is an act of unrighteous fear. For every position of rest, there's a position of restlessness. For every holy love, there is a holy hatred. And we see it in the Garden of Eden. Before that fruit was eaten, the Bible says it was beautiful to the eye. In fact, it must have been the most beautiful of all fruits. To the eye of Eve and Adam, this fruit was luscious. It had to be consumed. But once they consume it, what happens? Their eyes are open, and they not only are fearful, they're not only restless, but they hate the fruit that was so beautiful. Do you remember Amnon in the Old Testament, son of David? The Bible says in 2 Samuel 13 that Amnon loved his sister. In fact, his love was a physical love. He was strongly attracted to her. And so he plots to win her affections. And it's an interesting story what he does. He feigns that he's sick, feigns that he's sick. He's in the bed. She comes into his quarters. He begins to seek to seduce her. She resists and he rapes her. You know what the Bible says? It's very telling. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love he had at first. How do you explain that? How do you explain that in your own life? Something that you desired so much, it was so beautiful. Once you get it, it becomes so ugly and so detestable. Why? Because you veer off the highway. Instead of being on the road, you're in the swamp. Amnon learns that it wasn't really love. It was a raging lust. He's in the ditch. 
He wills his own will, and he ends up in the ditch. You say, what possible purpose could God have in establishing these rules of engagement? What possible purpose would God have in creating this terrible fear, this restlessness, this hatred to demonstrate to every creature that anyone who wills a will apart from his will will not prosper, but will land in a ditch. I can't tell you the number of times I'm dealing with folks that are in the ditch. Why? How could this happen? How could God allow it? You know there's an upside to the ditch? The ditch shows you the beauty of the road. The ditch shows you the wisdom of the Creator. The ditch shows you that without the ditch, you would never experience the joy of being rescued. None of us would ever know without a ditch that we can do nothing without Christ. Without a ditch, you'd never know the joy of knowing Him, that He becomes your all in all. You see, God's established the articles of war. And if you don't understand them, you will live them and only have questions. Once you understand them and you live them, even when you're in a ditch, you say, Lord, come rescue me from it. Amen? Amen.